Welcome to a special edition of Where RD Now, a podcast dedicated to catching up with former RAs, but tonight, former RD staff, and hearing where their journey of life has taken them since their days working in the residential life office at New York University. I'm tonight's co-host. My name is Ashani Single. I'm a senior in CAS from Concord, California, studying English, and I am an RA at Greenwich. And I'm Tom Ellett, your other co-host, and I serve as the Senior Associate VP of Student Affairs. Ishani, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, it's great to have you. Tell Thank me a little you. bit, second year around as an yes. RA. Yes. Do you like living in Greenwich? I love living in Greenwich. I love the West Village. You do? It's a beautiful neighborhood. It's quiet. It's right on the water. It feels like living off campus, but you still have an NYU community, and you just get to see everyone that you go to school with around. English major. What do you think you want to do with that long term? So currently I'm in the process of applying to grad schools, and the grad programs I'm looking into are creative writing in poetry. Mm Good for um, you. Programs, and they're like two-year programs, and actually NYU has one, so. Ah, maybe a double dipper in the NYU family. Yep. Uh, in terms of what's been the most exciting program that you have created as an RA in the over the year and a half you've been an RA? I did a really, really fun program two months ago. I contacted the health center and had four or five people come to Greenwich, set up in our lounge, and administer flu shots for four hours. We got 50, 55 residents to get their flu shot. We went door to door. It was like a Friday afternoon, and so many people not only like got their shots, but learned more about vaccinations and why it's important to get your shot. If you haven't gotten your flu shot, get your flu shot. It sounds like we have a great episode tonight. I am super excited. This is going to be a very special episode. Today our guest is Jamia Wilson, served as the ACDE of University Hall with Brett Crutch during the 2007 to 2010 academic years. Welcome, Jamia, and thank you so much for joining us today. It's a real pleasure having you on. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. Of course. How are you and where are you? I am great. I am in Inwood in northern Manhattan in my lovely apartment here right on the park. I love it. Excellent. Well, it, it is really a pleasure to hear your voice. Um, we had a chance to work together for a number of years. Tell us, let's go back to your decision to come to NYU to be a, a residential life staff member. What made you come to NYU? Well, I am really proud to be involved with NYU as an alum and also having been an alum of the department because my grandfather was an African-American alum of NYU in the 40s. Um, And I feel like it's been a really special honor for me to be one of the few African-American legacies that I know of. And I've also heard this from people um, in the diversity department and other places uh, of an institution like NYU. And so NYU has always held a special place for me because my grandfather had to go to NYU for grad school because the grad 
school in our state wouldn't allow him to study there due to segregation. So it's always represented a place of possibility for me. And so many things in my life shifted in a positive way after coming to NYU. And so I've always seen it as a beacon. And one of the things I've written about, which, you know, depends on if people think it's coincidence or spiritual circumstance, depending on who they are. Um, is that my grandfather actually came to me in a dream one time in my entire life. And it was when I was making a decision whether or not to go to NYU. And he told me to move to New York, that it would change my life. Um, And he's never come back to me in a dream ever since. So I feel that NYU is very much a part of that story and the connection. That's inspirational, truly. And, And for you to be following such a legacy as you described, is impressive and a great story. Thank you. Tell us a little bit about, you come here to work and then you go to school. You did both full time. I did. How did you manage that? You know, it was amazing. I had so much anxiety about what it would be like to manage that because I am someone who throws myself very fully into everything I do from my work to my relationships. If I'm going to be there, I'm going to be there solidly (laughs) and be in it and be present. And I just knew that I wanted to learn and I knew I wanted to grow. And I've always had a strong work ethic. And as soon as I was old enough to work, my parents always instilled in me that you should always have a job. So I felt like the work that I was doing academically was complemented by the work I was doing in the community and giving back to the academic and housing community that I lived in, giving back to the community that I was participating in. And all of those things worked out really well. I think it really helped to have management who supported the learning and professional development of staff, because that was helpful to be able to have the kind of flexibility I needed to study. But I also think it was a great motivator to be able to also identify with the students, to know what they were going through as learners, to have empathy for what it would be like for them during final exams or having big papers due, what it was like to also sometimes if I was struggling with something academically, to know that maybe it was okay because I was having a success at work or vice versa and in the same, in the same community. And I, and I, I still hold that. I remember at one point really struggling with catching up um, to some of the demands of what it means to get into graduate level work and asking myself, Oh, can you do this? <laughs> can you do this? Mm-hmm. Can you be in the class with PhD students when mm-hmm. you're getting your master's, et cetera. But also thinking, Oh, wow, I see what value I'm able to, bring to my community here in my job. And that was helpful to continue to keep going, that I was getting um, the support in various channels. Wow, that was a really great answer. And I think you answered all of our questions. So thank you so much. This is a great podcast. Stop (laughs) it. We're just beginning. (laughs) Can you tell us a little bit more about specifically what you were studying in your grad program, please? Yes. So I was studying in a program that was then called the Draper School for Humanities and Social Thought. And now it's a Center for Humanities is what it's called. And that program was so amazing because it's interdisciplinary, but interdisciplinary in a way where you can focus on the intersection of social science and theory. And the department was just small enough so that 
I could know the majority of the people who were kind of coming up with me in the program, but also big enough that there was a wide range of people studying different things. So I learned a lot just by being in community with all these people who had these intersecting interdisciplinary ideas who helped me think bigger because they were all studying things I'd never thought about before. Uh, and affirming me and thinking that it was okay to maybe be studying a thing that wasn't as clearly understood by everyone else, but that you wanted to explore. And uh, I absolutely loved it. And I'm still in touch with the directors of my department and other alums who I went to school with there. One of my uh, first friends from my first class there is now on my board of directors at the Feminist Press. So, okay, so you finish the degree, you, you, you uh, leave NYU. Tell us about the next steps you took to get where you are today. So when I left NYU, I went to the Women's Media Center and I became their vice president of programs and began to run their Progressive Women's Voices media training and commentator program and also worked on their media training and commentator program for girls and then helped run the rest of their media and campaign program. And what was so great about it was that that community introduced me to a lot of women who were at the intersection of activism and storytelling. And in change, I could help in supporting them, connect with the communities they were a part of. But also, I was lucky enough to work under the founders of the organization, who are iconic feminists who I had always looked up to, including Gloria Steinem, Jane Fonda, and Robin Morgan. And their mentorship has been very integral to the ascension that I've had in my career. And although I had met Gloria when I had started working as a campus organizer at Planned Parenthood out of college, I really got to know her when I was at Women's Media Center and really got to learn from her example. And one of the big touch points for me that really shifted my work um, and the way that I thought that I could really step up my engagement was when she was going on the Today Show to talk about the 40th anniversary of Ms. Magazine. And she was gonna be featured along with some of the early editors and the daughter of one of the editors. And Gloria insisted that I go along with her onto the show because she really felt like it was important for the next generation to be there. And she also felt like women of color's voices need to be front and center in the movement moving forward. That's incredible. So that today's show experience to me was a major marker of a turning point in my life mm -hmm. and work. Um, and ever since then, there's been a lot of change <laughs> that's happened for me. And I appreciate you were able to pinpoint that moment, too. What an incredible opportunity for you to really be pushed and invited to participate and then do it. Yeah. So congratulations to you and great turning point. Thank you. I feel like a lot of people don't know that one turning point in their life, and I think it's really important. Jamia, can you tell me a little bit about, you know, how you found storytelling and how it found you? Oh, thank you. That's such a great question. I have often felt that storytelling is something that I was taught through the African-American narrative tradition in my culture, that it was something that we would do around the holiday, you know, on Thanksgiving, people would go around the table and talk about stories and the elders would always mm -hmm. tell us about things. And when they would introduce people, it would always come through stories. I just, I just had it 
a week ago when my dad had a friend he hadn't seen in 40 years from college who he put on speakerphone and his friend started reciting a sonnet my dad had taught him as an English major. And this guy was a football player who still remembers it. And, um, and I think the culture, it's just, I think it's been the culture for me, but really I think with everyone, with the culture we have, um, we'll have different things that really resonate with us or the traditions that we would like to drive forward. And I've always aligned with this thinking, oh, when before my ancestors um, were able to universally be able to access the right to read, um, a lot of times our traditions were passed through the, the verbal narrative because of these inequalities that were there. And so it's something I've always just enjoyed. And I also learned pretty young that one of the strengths that I had was ability to connect with people through story. And I was born with a disability. I was born blind in one of my eyes. And I always kind of knew that while I didn't have physical sight, um, that was as strong as other people, that my ability to listen and my ability to speak were stronger because I had to adapt. And I really just kind of leaned into that. And it took many years for me to realize that my inability to see like other people actually allows me to hone in on something else and was kind of forced into that development. And I, I think about it often now, which is why I wouldn't change it if I could. Self-awareness is such a key part of who you are. How do you teach that mm-hmm. to the youth of today to realize your challenges in life mm-hmm. and then to not only recognize them, but to overcome them? Mm, I think I'm still on a journey, you know, I'm still learning. And I think I had a really great role model in my mother who very much would challenge me to be very self-aware and to be aware of how I was impacting others through my actions and my words. And um, to always kind of lead with gratitude, lead with curiosity, and also think about what my role was in anything, good or bad, right? taking ownership and what is your role? What do you have the power to do? I was thinking about this recently because I have another children's book coming out for a little bit older readers than my first children's book. um, That'll be coming out in March and it's called step into your power. And I'm dedicating that book to my mother because the book is about 21 life lessons for young girls to learn. And the life lesson she gave me was to think about, okay, no matter what adversity you encounter in your life, you always have the power to make a choice, a decision about how you are going to rise to the occasion. And that has really led me to be uh, deeply invested in having the awareness and the humility to understand and listen and to notice what the things are that I have in any given moment. There's always something that we can leverage. There's always something that we can gratefully honor um, to move things forward in a positive way or in honor of our truth. And sometimes I find that really difficult in certain life crossroads and losses, but there's always a lesson. And so I just, I really thank her for that. And it, and it turned into a book um, because I want, I want young girls and I want all young people to, to learn that, but I specifically have focused on young girls because I think we don't get enough messages about the fact that we are very, very powerful and can be very powerful. Absolutely. And I love this idea of the journey, you know, and I think it's talked about a lot. And in so many ways, it's become a cliche. But I think, um, you know, hearing someone like you talk about your own journey and your own self-awareness, it 
it's cliche because it's true and it's real and you know you are a true success story and I guess I was just wondering you know like a lot of your work and your words have appeared in places like the New York Magazine, the Today Show, and the Washington Post and then of course in your role today as the publisher of the Feminist Post how does social justice play a part in your life and do you have any advice on how you keep it real and keep yourself authentic and keep yourself going because it can be really challenging hard work especially I think in today's political atmosphere and social atmosphere it can be depressing so you know how do you keep it real how do you practice self-care and how do you keep yourself going so one of the things I've been thinking about quite a bit is um you know, being ready for an inflection point, kind of like you, what you said about knowing a moment when you see it, right? <laughs> um, that is, once I kind of tuned into that being, you know, to kind of say, wow, mm-hmm. I see an opportunity here, and this is mm-hmm. the moment to rise yeah. that opportunity. And while I do think being in social justice spaces can be really, really tough, sometimes you have to have a lot of endurance, you have to have a lot of patience to sometimes see the change that you're working for come into fruition. I really enjoy the process of being able to spot a moment of opportunity of, of rising, I guess, and, and to ride that wave. And so there's part of it that I think is kind of a nature thing for me, but I also think that there's another part of it that is about just really, truly feeling lucky to live in my values. I feel like the luckiest person ever that I can wake up in the morning and know that the work I'm doing is in alignment with my values, Mm -hmm. how I see the world, the kind of community that I want to build. And so when I have a bad day, which I trust me, they they happen, (laughs) Um, you know, many times when I, when I see things happening that are really demoralizing, um, I can think, wow, but I am so lucky to be in this place, in this work with these people who share my values. And I was talking about this with someone else. They were asking me, how do you talk to people who disagree with you diametrically? And I said that, and it's hard, especially right now, you know, it's, it's really hard. And, and I said that if people share my values and the, the fundamental core values, then we can build. And that's agree on all the other things. But if we share some key core values, then there are common ground that can be built upon there as long as those core values are met. And so I think that that's how I stay in the work. That's how I remain grounded and, and really also thinking about how I can make an impact that is going to help trailblaze a path for the next generation because I have been the beneficiary of other people's sacrifices and hard work. And what I am hoping to do is to help create pathways for other people. And I might not live to see all of the fruits of that labor, but I know that the work will go on. And so that's, that's really what I focus on a lot is just what is it that I can do in this moment with my calling and my purpose and the community I'm with and the strengths that I have Absolutely. and what I can bring to the table to help move things forward in some way. And who can I also lift up while we're building and other people did that for me. And so I just feel really emboldened by that and want to do that as much as I can as I grow in my work and in my professional career. You talked really eloquently about role models who have imparted great wisdom to you, whether it be a family member or someone like Gloria Steinem. 
What do you read? Mm. What are the things that influence mm. you on a daily basis, whether it be periodicals, whether mm. it be a book? I'd be really interested uh, for our, our listeners to hear something that they should be reading that informed you. Ooh, I have so many recommendations. I love, love that question. So the book that I keep going back to right now is a book called Judith Orloff, who's a, a doctor. She's a New York Times bestselling author of this book called Emotional Freedom. But the book that I keep going back to now is called The Impact Survival Guide, Life Strategies for Sensitive People. When I began to realize that I was a highly sensitive person, self-identified with that, began to release feelings of shame about that not necessarily being something that was universally adored by other people in my life or celebrated in our society in terms of a leadership <laughs> trait, um, I wanted to study it more. And I realized, oh, being an empath helps me show up in leadership that is different than the ways in which we mm, traditionally yeah. prescribe leadership, but it's the kind of leadership that works really well for the work that I'm doing. It also inspires other people who feel like their kinds of leadership might not be enough, and I put enough in quotes, to be able to have a platform or to do work at a certain scale to say, oh, well, if Jamia's doing it, I can do it. And so I, I have a friend who was an organizer of a major movement and she was saying that the other people of that movement are known for being really fiery in their speech and very incendiary and that she often felt self-conscious because that's just not how she communicates. She's much more of a, a nurturer and uh, an introvert, but strong and powerful. And she said, you know, no offense, Jamia, but you're someone who's made me feel really inspired that I can speak up because you communicate more in the way that I communicate and I still feel like it's compelling <laughs> and I learned that I didn't have to present myself in the way that other people did or have to copy a way that isn't my way in order to be powerful and strong and so that book has really moved me and I, I read a lot of news I you know I'm, I'm always on Twitter reading a lot of New York Times and BBC and all of those things but that book is something I'm, I'm really gravitating toward right now and the other book that I'm reading is also a book that I contributed to, which is the Well-Read Black Girl Anthology. And it is an anthology by Gloria Dem um, that was edited by her with Black writers from across generations talking about where we first found ourselves in story and how books helped us see ourselves and find our voices. And that book right now is really inspiring me um, because some of the writers who I grew up really, really wanting to connect with, really, really inspired by are people who I'm now in conversation with in this book and also in the events we're doing for the book. And I, I recommend it to anyone, even if they're not a well-read black girl, <laughs> because what it's really about is community. It's about the power of story. And it's about how we can uplift ourselves by uplifting others, because that's the way in which the editor of this book so beautifully tended the garden of community. And so those are the two books on my nightstand right now. Thank you very much. Uh, they will be on my nightstand soon too. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Want to go back to, uh, to give you a chance to do any shout outs for any of mm -hmm. the staff that you worked with during your time here at NYU. Oh my goodness. So NYU was so amazing. And what I love is just seeing where different people have gone. So when I was 
living in California a few years ago, I was there for a short time and I ran into Isha, uh, who was in Palladium <laughs> um, as an RA there, and she was working for YouTube. And I was so excited to kind of run into her at the market in Oakland and say, whoa, I remember you when you were in RA and when you were in Raleigh, and now I want to cultivate you <laughs> for the work I'm doing in YouTube. Um, and just really being proud of her and, and wanting to get reconnected. And I also, I think from afar, and I didn't get to see her because I had to rush out when I was there, but I saw Cece. <laughs> when I was at the Women's Studies Association conference and she didn't get to see me because I was um, working a table there but I saw her from a distance I think with the University of Illinois delegation and I thought oh my gosh amazing I remember talking to her about her PhD and oh. being interested in applying and now she's speaking at this amazing conference for the best minds in gender studies um and and so even i didn't even get a chance to really chat with her that day because it was so quickly and she had lots of fans <laughs> that i saw kind of happening there but it was really cool to kind of see the tentacles of our department and where we're going and, and i just you know brett was one of the best bosses i've ever had um brett crutch who you mentioned before and he was very encouraging of me as a writer when I worked at NYU. And yeah, I love yeah. being in conversation with him now about his writing and the work that he's doing. And I just learned so much from him about being a manager. Um, and so there's, there's just so much. I mean, I was just thinking about Jack, who was one of our RAs, who is now a TV writer for Dear White People um, and on Netflix and how I remember when I was writing for Rookie Magazine, which is a magazine for teen girls, that some of my rookie editors were talking about this amazing writer, Jack, who was writing for GQ and Esquire. And then I realized, wait, you mean my RA. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, but then I thought back about the days in which he was our RA and we would come in and have one-on-ones and he would tell me about how he was a nanny for prominent screenwriters here in New York. And now he's a screenwriter <laughs> and he was taking screenwriting classes at NYU. <laughs> so I just, I'm really in awe of what I've seen happen and emerge with just so many people that I could say this about as well. And also feeling honored that in some way I've been a part of their lives. Um, every time I see a show that Jack's written on, I just squeal because I really felt like I got to know him when he was on our team. But also now I can kind of see the conversations we had about diversity or gender and these other things play themselves out in the writing on a show, which I think is really cool. It is really cool to be able to see the impact you have on people in their yeah. work later on. So congrats yeah. on that. Jamia, can you tell us what you were most proud of in your career to date? Mm. I am most proud of getting the Distinguished Alumni Award at NYU. Um, Thank you so much. Um, that when getting that from GSAS, I got the email and I had to make sure that it wasn't spam email or a joke because I was so moved by it. And um, just given the history that my family has with NYU and the history I've had with NYU as both staff and student and being as young as I am to get an award like that, it actually, to me, felt like a deep honor and investment in where I'm going because of where I am in my life for people to kind of affirm me at this point. Um, one of my mentors who's going to be 90 years old next year 
was an NYU alum and she's on my board now and she came with me to the event and she just said that, you know, she knew people who she was with at NYU way before I was born who would have been so honored to get that award at her age and that she wanted me to understand the profound meaning of getting it so young and and just knowing that my grandfather where he is in the stars knows that that I'm carrying on the legacy and that a place that he loves so much would honor that legacy just um moves me and so I just I I'm most proud of that and I hope I can live up to it in my work and my life you do I think you are yeah, yeah, you definitely <laughs> you. you definitely do I think you're going um, above and beyond and absolutely speaking. finally you know what was your most memorable experience uh in residential life here Mm, oh my gosh, I have so many. I have so many experiences that were memorable. And, you know, I would say one of the things that I think about a lot, and, you know, it's funny because I could talk about one that was really profound because there's so many things, you know, that come through my mind, especially with issues I'm working on around gender. Um, just the conversations I would have with students, there's so many of those moments where people would shape my thinking about things or international students shifting a perspective I would have or talking about religion with students or things like that. And one of those experiences that I had was so moving to me that I wrote an article about it in a Women of Spirit and Faith anthology called When Grace Meets Power. And it was a situation where there were students who were living on a living and learning community floor where they were talking about spirituality and religion. And there were two roommates who were of different religions. Um, and those were kind of Judeo-Christian religions and Islamic religions. And then there was another student in the suite who was a self-identified Satanist. And they could not come to a consensus about how they could live in a room together with those three different religions happening, but specifically the women who were not Satanists, um, really struggling with the religious beliefs of their roommate, whose, I think, understanding of what it meant to be a Satanist was very different than I think, my, honestly, I'll say what I had stereotyped, what I thought it would be too as well from my own, my own religious upbringing, because I self-identify as a Christian mystic. And so, um, you know, very much aligned with Mary Magdalene, but I, um, I struggled with that and knew that we had to work this out and, you know, actually thought in my own religious tradition, like, Oh God, mm -hmm. thank you for giving me the real issue that I need to figure out <laughs> right now. Like, um, the real test, um, of having to make these people, that that was the point of this floor um, for them to figure out how to coexist together as long as no one was harming the other or that sort of thing. And what ended up happening is that we had a series of dialogues mm -hmm, together mm -hmm. about what the beliefs really were and where there were core values there. And although we did end up resolving the situation and everyone ended up living together for the rest of the semester after having these conversations and talking about what the real shared values were and misconceptions and these things, I felt like I came out of it learning a lot about myself and what I learned. And this is what I wrote in this piece was that I'd always seen myself as religiously open-minded, as spiritually open-minded, as a pluralist, you know, that I love all people and this and that. And I had to face my own anger, my own inability to understand how someone could subscribe to her religion, um, and my own bias toward 
the two students whose religions aligned more with mine. But I knew in my job at NYU, my job is to represent all of the students. And so I'm really grateful for that lesson because it really forced me to look at my values and to look at work that I still had to do to be truthful with myself about my own implicit biases. Um, and I think that that was mm-hmm. contributed to my own self-awareness. And so I, I wrote about that in that piece because it was such a profound moment to me. And um, it, it led me to actually want to continue to ask the students how things were going after the semester. You know, um, how you ended up living together. How did it go? Because I think I probably learned more from that experience than they did. Um, just kind of grappling with my own feelings of discomfort about even having to deal with it. And so I remember that a lot as a powerful experience that I will never forget. I really appreciate you sharing it. And it really talks about your reflective practice and how you continue to be a lifelong learner every chance you get. And I would challenge all of us to do that in every interaction we have with those in front of us to say, what can I learn from what I just heard or what I just said to that Mm -hmm. person, how they responded. So thank you for sharing that. Yes. Thank you. Jamia, thanks so much for spending some time with Tom and I to discuss your journey and your life after NYU and where it's taken you. As always, thanks to our listeners who can stay connected with RD alums who are living the dream school alumni version of life. Jamia, you are an inspiration, and I really appreciate you taking the time out of your very busy schedule. I know that you're doing so much, and I love to see your tweets and your Facebook posts. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you so much. I love what you all are doing. I'm always so proud to have been a part of that community and to still be a part of the NYU community, and if there's anything that I can ever do to support anyone, I'm, I'm here, so I want people to know that, too. I'm here, and all right. your manuscript to me. <laughs> And what was the name of your first first book? My first book was called Young, Gifted, and Black, and it is a compendium of on 52 global luminaries around the world who self-identify as being black. And also, um, I have another book called Roadmap for Revolutionaries, Advocacy for All, which is a book about advocacy and activism that I co-authored with two other amazing authors, Carolyn Geron and Elisa Camahort-Page. Well, we'll make sure we get it on the website, too, so all of the RAs get a chance. Finally, I do want a special thanks to my engineer, Duncan Lemieux, and to the current professional staff and alums like Jamia Wilson, who has really assisted RAs in the skills acquisition phase to be writers and to be nonprofit agents and to be people in the medical field. If you like the show, look for more content on the website. And if you want to know RA's favorite books, go to the blog at whatthey'rereading.blogspot.com. And finally, be a role model, be yourself, listen and notice those around you, just like Jamia has shared with us tonight. Take care. 